Hello, and welcome to the One Mind Meditation Podcast. My name is Morgan Dix, and this is a show about meditation, mindfulness, and your health. This podcast is sponsored and hosted by AboutMeditation.com. So great to be back with everyone. It's been about a year since my last broadcast, and I'm thrilled to be back and sharing with you my interview with Vedran Perik. Vedran's an old friend of mine, and we have been on lots of meditation retreats together, and we are in a men's group together, and have a lot of overlapping and shared passions. And in this show today, we're going to talk about his most recent venture, Leap X Consulting, which is a peak performance consultancy that he started working with top performers in musicians, athletes, and in business settings. And Bedrin's going to tell you all about his system that he uses for his uh, consultancy, but really why I thought it was going to be very interesting for you is his system integrates a lot of modalities that we talk about on the show. Flow and flow states, meditation, and peak performance. So his model really integrates these in a fascinating, dynamic, and I think novel way. And Veteran is very articulate in sharing with everyone how he does that and the results. So I think you're going to love today's show. And before we start, I wanted to invite you to join me. I am teaching a five-week mindfulness meditation course live and online starting on November 8th. The classes will be taking place from 8 to 9.15 p.m. Eastern Time and The course is called Coming Home, a five-week mindfulness meditation training program. So this is really great for if you're new to meditation, but also if you're just looking for a a morale booster or you want to inject a little energy into your practice, engage with a little bit of community and direct instruction from a teacher, then I really encourage you to join me for this course. We're going to have an amazing time and I can't wait. So if you're interested, head on over to aboutmeditation.com. Right on the homepage, you will see in the courses listing, you'll see the coming home icon and just, just click on that banner and sign up there. And yeah, if you have any questions, you can also write to me about the course at Morgan at aboutmeditation.com. So that's the course is called Coming Home, a five-week mindfulness meditation training course. And you can learn more about that over at aboutmeditation.com. All right, so now let's jump into our show with Vedran. Vedran, hey man, welcome to the show. Hi, Morgan. I'm delighted to be here, my friend. Awesome. So everybody... I'm delighted to have Vedran Parikh on the show today. Vedran and I have been friends since about the year 2000. We're both in, in uh, Mahamudra teachings together in, uh, with a Tibetan Buddhist teacher and tradition. So Vedran and I, we go way back, but we have all these wonderful overlapping contexts. We're also in a, a, a very active 
beautiful men's group together. And Veteran has launched a consultancy recently. And every time we talk about what he's doing, we both light up. We thought, hey, man, we should do a show about this. So here we are. And I'm super excited about this. Veteran, can you share with everyone a little bit? First, give everyone just your elevator pitch. What are you doing? And then I want to go into, I want to back up and really explore your bio for a bit. I want to hear how you got into this work. But if you can start with just giving people a high-level overview of what you're doing. So the LeapX Consulting is a, as you said, it's a consulting practice that's using a custom-made sort of framework, which, you know, you can can use the flowery language, but in a really, in a nutshell, what it is, it's a step-by-step training curriculum that facilitates a quantum leap in mm. individual and organization performance and creativity and well-being and sort of across many parameters. That's how you want to talk about it, really. And what it does, really, it includes some of the most effective Western scientific methodologies, which we can talk about it later, but they include things like peak performance and flow. They include modern psychology. It includes Western modern uh, ways of teaching. And then making transformation and learning. And it kind of holistically integrates it with some of the most profound insights and practices of the ancient wisdom traditions. So the framework that I'm using is really custom designed and sort of from the ground up to use some of the most direct and proven ways to facilitate deep transformational change. And so that's really what it is in a nutshell. And It really came out of my 20 years of studying and practicing and trying to wrap my head around the dynamics and mechanics of individual and organizational transformation. Nice. So that's awesome. All right. So, yeah, let's pan back. If you could just share with people some of your original motivations for Mm -hmm. pursuing the spiritual life. So, for me, for example, it was in college and, you know, I had a, I had an existential crisis, you know, I was looking for meaning where, and I could not find it. So like, you know, I was getting depressed. So I started really pursuing spiritual awakening and meaning and purpose. Mm-hmm. And that, that really drove me into something that then, that then took on its own life and was a sort of self nourishing process. That's just grown and grown and grown. Yeah. I'd like to understand a little bit more. Why did you pursue all this? What were some of the original impulses? What got you started? Yeah. What were you looking for? Yeah, no, no, that's that's actually a very good question, Morgan. So, and it was probably like within the last six months or so that that I came myself to realization, sort of what was going on. <laughs> and so, this is a really good question that you're asking, you know, because it, it's it's quite deep and important. So. What really happened when I was very, when I was very very young? So probably before the age of like six, seven, or something like that. I remember vividly having a deep intuitive sense that there's a whole lot possible, a lot more possible than what I was seeing around around me. And I remember sort of like going back and forth, you know going to mm-hmm. schools and kindergartens and all of that. And, and so, 
and and there was this sense of like a little bit of disappointment almost, right? Because I really wasn't seeing examples of the potentials mm. almost anywhere. And so I remember, you know, by the age of like six or seven, I sort of accepted that that's really what it is. And I almost admitted that I was wrong, so to say, right? And so I was sort of minding my own business, uh, going to college and graduate school and, you know, building a career and all of that. And really what happened is when I engaged uh, in Mahamudra and Dzogchen, right, and, and started having uh, some, some, some really deep realizations there, that that memory of that when I was a kid, it really kind of became alive. You know, and I, I, I sort of realized that, that that is actually possible. Like, like that from some reason or another, me as a kid, I felt that that was possible, but then I gave up on it until, until I engaged in Dzogchen Mahamudra. And so that whole thing just kind of came alive. And really going around and engaging in a bunch of systems, different systems, like we spoke about, you know, I, I had a Zen practice for a number of years. We were talking about Advaita Vedanta, studied organizational and management theories in grad school. I was doing the indigenous, uh, indigenous plant medicine sort of methodologies and approaches. I engaged in diamond approach, process work, peak performance, like all of these systems for me in some way was, was a way to gather tools mm. to bring about that possibility, right? And so that's really what my motivation was, really. It's kind of going back to these early years and feeling disappointed that a quantum leaps in, in well-being are not possible. And then realizing that, that, that that's not true. Actually, it is possible. If you engage the right systems, if you actually do certain types of practices, it's not even that hard. But if you line things up in, in the right way, these things are possible. And so, yeah, th that's really my motivation, you know. So I really yeah. appreciate your question because it's not something that I I was aware of until perhaps six or or like five six months ago. I just remember really contemplating about that and uh, and connected with that whole story. Wow! So you recently remembered that and you connected the dots and realized, hey, I think that that was active the whole time. Part of me was always seeking or searching for that well you know subconsciously well you know you know uh, what reminded me of that like seeing my kids mm. and seeing that they live in that kind of like opal potential and yeah you know, yeah and in reality that, that's much more magical than sort of like how we perceive it Right. And so for me, I'm like wow you know I remember that time you know so what happened and then I traced it back mm to you know how how I shut it down at some point. And yeah. so it was it was really my kids that uh that I opened my eyes to. That's cool. Well I think I think it's a great bridge then in terms of these potentials that you're talking about to to go into talking about what you're doing now with the the LeapX peak performance framework. So yeah, why don't you start to take us in? I mean you described it a little bit in the beginning mm -hmm. with your elevator pitch, but so you've started this consultancy and, you know, it's evolving quickly as you would expect. And you tell, tell us a little bit about it. What, yeah. what, it, what is it? And how, how did you go from 
working in, you know, from Akamai and doing the, the, the high level technology work mm -hmm. into this. So just one slight correction. So what I gave you was not an, uh, a technical elevator pitch for <laughs> what I'm doing. So that that's kind of like the elevator pitch is, is a little more technical. So what I gave you is sort of like a simple explanation that people can really relate to rather yeah. than something that's right. Even that is very high level. So I think it would be actually very interesting and useful for your listeners to almost experientially connect to things that I'm talking about. So I'm, I'm going to move away from the scientific talk and technical talk and things like that, just to make it a little more practical. Mm -hmm. And that's also going to explain how the model in a way came together, right? So yeah. what I noticed at some point is when you look at the commonalities between some of the contemporary elite performers and world-class sort of achievers and in almost any discipline, right? So it doesn't really matter. It could be sports, business, arts, music. You sort of analyze a little some historical paradigm shifting in individuals. You can sort of go by tradition if you want, Zen, Tibetan, things like that. You can also look at some of historical uh, people like Marcus Aurelius, for instance, and you look at the quotes and you read through. What became very clear to me is that there were sort of like three things that was that was going on. The first of all, all of them seem to have had very highly trained and developed and, and, and refined mindset in a very specific way almost. Like, you know, there, there are sort of subcomponents to that, but that's something that's very clear to me. The second one is that they learn how to utilize the in the zone or flow states, which we can kind of get into if, if you're interested, right? And then the third component is that this is more perhaps for groups and organizations and societies that they were they managed to create environments and cultures centered around excellence and shared vision and shared values and group flow and things of that kind, right? And so then what I basically did in some ways, I, I, I built my framework around it. So it has three core components, mindset, flow, and culture. And then underneath these core components, there's between four and six very practical and specific ways to gradually train up these capacities. And what these methodologies are doing, they're sort of doing two things simultaneously, right? They're removing the old habitual limitations that we all sort of like adopted as we move through life. And they're sort of encoded in our brains and as established neural pathways. So we sort of like dissolving those old patterns, right? And we are simultaneously creating new patterns by training up and building new high-performance capacities. And so what these frameworks do, really, they just kind of go gradually and they just remove lim old limitation and they build up new capacities in a, in a way that's very systematic, right? You kind of, you gradually move from one component to another and bring these capacities online and, and turn them up as, as, as you move along. So for instance, mindset has six playbooks that I call, called growth mindset, motivation, big vision, clear goals, positive psychology, and grit. And these are very heavy influence from the uh, peak performance curriculums, which I think that are really excellent. 
And then the second component has to do with learning how to train flow, to get into flow. And this can be also done systemically by first learning nitty-gritty details of what flow is, how it works, and so on, but then really working very specifically with blockers and then also triggers, which are the ways you trigger flow. And then the last component is sort of like a little more of a of, a, of advanced, which has to do really mastery of flow, which really is a lofty goal of, of, of making the flow permanent state, which tradition told us that it is possible, right? And then the same thing for culture. There are four different ways you can kind of really work through and build up uh, a shared vision, shared values, group flow, and so on. So what I think might be helpful for everyone is if we just, let's go into each one on its own mm-hmm. terms and and so we un- unpack it a little bit. So for example, I mean, because I think everyone like on a superficial, superficial level, mindset, flow and culture, they can kind of get it. And everyone, I've worked with Vedran a little bit in this. He's he's done some coaching with me and I found it very useful. Let's start at the the beginning when you talk about mindset and you unpack mm-hmm. this the six playbooks there let's talk about just what is in this context what is mindset and why is yeah. it so important what why is it so critical to the framework and more importantly just why is it so critical to transformation and peak performance yes very good so that's that's a very good question and and so i think now that we understand that these three components and so on so i i think now the rubber hits the road in a way, right? So mm. what is mind? What is mindset? There are many definitions, right? But at the sort of like a most general way, you can, you can say that that's a very habitual way that we automatically perceive ourselves, what's possible, what's not possible, what we can do, what we cannot do, but then also more broadly, how we automatically take in reality to be, right? And that's all well and good in a way. We all walk around with a certain mindset, so to say, right? But the thing is that many of these habitual ways of perceiving reality, ourselves, what's possible, what's not possible, and so on, we basically adopted when we were young most of the time, sometimes in a later formative years, you know, from our surrounding, from our culture, from our family, from our schools, and so on. And these particular habits, right, were perhaps at some point maybe even made sense. But now that we have grown up, right, at present, many of them are really outdated, and they are literally preventing and limiting our own further growth and development. And so that's why it's so important really to kind of look into those, right? And most of the time we are aware of some of them. So for instance, if your listeners now try directly to look into their own experience, right? They will probably recognize some of the habitual ways and mental habits that they're familiar with. Because these are really like almost like these repetitive loops that they keep going and going in. And so very often we are vaguely aware of some, especially people who do some practice, right? 
they probably can notice more, right? Right. But at the same time, there's a whole bunch, you know, that's like subconscious. That's like Dr. Dan Brown would often say, you know, it's it's almost like if you use a, a Macintosh or, or Windows laptop and there's just a bunch of kind of windows that are open in the background. Yeah. Right. And so you don't really right. look at those until you sort of bring them, bring them to the surface. And so that's why it's so important to really kind of like let these habitual way bubble up because they're all they are, they're habits of mind hmm. and they stand in the way in some way, because we cannot really, we cannot really easily work with them if they're subconscious. And so right. what they do is like, they're literally standing in the way between where we are now and where we want to be or who we are now or who want to be. And there is simply no other way that either the modern science and psychology and all these systems that I mentioned or the traditions, they did not discover a way to really dissolve the move forward with these until you recognize them, until mm. you become aware of what they are, until you understand and integrate them, right? Yeah. And that's really what, what neuroplasticity is in a way. Neuroplasticity, like, is that what you said? Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's really what it is. It's just... Uh, dissolving the old mental patterns, creating a new mental patterns. And by doing that, you'll literally upgrade and rewire your brain. Yeah. And when that happens, then you also establish a new habits. And so when you have sort of upgraded brain, if you will, a new set of habits, you're literally a different person. So, so this is really good. Really in, my, in a nutshell. Yeah, I love this. All right, so everyone, like one exercise that Vedran had me do, and I think it's probably pretty central to the mindset practice he he shares with people. But this is an example for everyone of exactly what he was just talking about. He encouraged me to identify the difference between a growth mindset and a fixed mindset inside my own thinking processes, and there was a sort of rubric where you could just look and see, okay growth mindset here's like the inner here's what the inner dialogue looks like around growth mindset and here's what the inner dialogue dialogue looks like around the fixed mindset like mm -hmm. and you know so i i took that in and almost and and again like i'm used to applying these types of filters just through spiritual practice mm -hmm. to help disembed fixed ways of relating and thinking so it's very native and, and natural for me to kind of just take these and look. And suddenly it was like, bing, 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 bing. You know, all these things just mm. started to pop right away. And I could see, oh, look at that. Like there are all these ways where my first response to a situation, particularly anything that's presenting any kind of challenge, well, I can't do this or, oh my God, or, you know, just some, some defeatist context where I was fundamentally disempowered by my own thinking. And I just said, oh, look at that. And what if I just shift my language to, I can, and I'm, you know, oh yeah, I can handle this. I, I'm, you know, and, and it, there was a sort of self-sufficiency and self-empowerment that immediately emerged. Like it's instantaneous. It's not, there's a process happening, which is the gradual disembedding from that fixed mindset. But what I found so powerful about the exercise was the instantaneous nature of it. You identify, objectify, and you know, in its place, mm -hmm. you 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 shift the inner narrative right away. And in a lot of ways, 
what you're talking about is taking control of your own inner narrative, right? You get to define it. And that's a big part of mindset is going from the habitual automatic that you were talking about to wait a second, I can completely shift this. And if I'm going to have, cause you can't really avoid habituation. If I'm going to have it, I'm going to shift it mm. into the growth mindset. And those are the habits I'm going to install. So um, yes, exactly. yeah, anyways, I just wanted to give that example to everyone. Cause when we did that, I found, I found the results were immediate. The application mm. was immediate. It was awesome. Yeah. I mean, just a couple of things to say about that. So that particular uh, protocol is developed by a Stanford uh, psychologist, Carol Dweck. And uh, she wrote a book, Mindset, and it's very, you know, based on a lot of research, decades of research. And it's also part of the peak performance curriculum, right? And so there are a number of protocols like that they use and I supplement number of protocols by, you know, by the traditional ways of doing things as well. So in, in my own framework. But what's interesting about it is, number one, as you said, that by actively participating and using these protocols to unlock these habitual way of th seeing things, things can actually shift much more rapidly than they would by doing mindfulness practices themselves because the mindfulness practices are not necessarily fine-tuned to do that. They do all kinds of things. But if you want to deal with this, this is much more direct. And as a matter of fact, combining both and doing both, it can drastically accelerate progression through various stages of meditation, through growth and development, however, however else you want to call it. And so... That's kind of one of the reasons why I'm, I'm, I'm really big on using some of these peak performance protocols because they're based on the clinical studies and outcome studies and some of the really fantastic best practices over the last 20, 30 years that were developed. And they can have immediate impact, as you say. Sometimes it's, it's enough to just notice what is it that I'm doing, saying, yes, I am doing this, right? I've you know, you can go back and find out why, but it doesn't even matter. Sometimes it's actually enough to see what you're doing, to realize that that's not really serving you well anymore. And then to find new habits that are much more in line with where you want to go. So in that sense, I think you experience it. It's only one small protocol of many other ones, but that's why I think you find it powerful because it's direct and quick and gives you control over your own growth and development in a way that mindfulness and other practices, as effective as they are, I don't see that happening so quickly. They really work well over the five, 10-year periods, but not necessarily in the order of weeks and months. Nice. Before we move on to flow, veteran, do you want mm -hmm. to uh, do you want to give maybe one more example? Like I highlighted that one and you just unpacked it. Is there another sort of mindset playbook or protocol that you want to give an example of before we move into flow? Yeah. So one that I find particularly, I mean, they're all really, you know, that when you have a system, right. They're like, that's built in really holistic systemic way. The components of the system are supporting each other and moving each other in a way. Do you know right. what I mean? And so when you look at it like that, like it's hard to say which one I like, you know, the most. But the one that I've seen um, to work wonders with, with my clients and myself as well 
is one around establishing a big, powerful, uh, massive, transformative vision for oneself. Mm. And the reason why that's so important is that uh, we as an individual, but also groups and organizations, we are sort of a goal-oriented systems. When we have a clear goal, and, and especially if it's sort of like intrinsically motivated, right? Like it's something that we really want versus our boss telling us to do and things like that, right? Yeah. But it's, if it's some sort of like inner vision that arises that really motivates us, that's extremely powerful. We really start kind of getting into flow and we can kind of immediately make all kinds of changes in our lives once we have that clear vision that arises, right? That motivates us. Yeah. And so... I find a lot of individuals and even top-notch organizations that I'm working with, even as a society, in some ways, you can speak of us losing a clear goal, right? Clear vision, where mm-hmm. exactly are we going? And so on an individual level, once that sort of is turned on, many, many things are, as a result of that, become possible, including doing all kinds of practices, getting into flow, you know, being very motivated, being, being really fired up to do things in, in all kinds of different ways, right? But I, I often find that without that particular critical component, the lofty, powerful inner vision of oneself, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we don't tend to do that. Like we're just sort of like floating around without that particular uh, uh, North Star where, where, where we want to go. So that's perhaps one that I, you know, all the other ones are serving their purpose and they're part of the larger system. Why is the massive transformative purpose so powerful? What do you, th- what, what is it about that defining a huge transformative vision for yourself? Why does that have such huge downstream effects on the system? Can yeah, you yeah. just unpack that a little bit? Well, yeah, and, you know, there can be a, a more superficial answer to that question, but I'm really trying to sort of connect and fish out, if you will, like so really this deep psychological reason why it's so yeah. important. The first, one, the first one is I already mentioned it, you know, but it's, it, I think it's very important that there's something about human psyche um, that once we have a goal, we really align with it. Like we really sort of go for it. If it's, especially if it's a very powerful goal. So you can, for instance, see anytime you have a huge cultural revolution or, or some huge cultural change, people are actually drawn by the big idea or, 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 or vision of what's possible. You look at the top, um, for instance, top performing organizations, right? It's the same thing, but... The vision can be defined as a sort of like, let's just make more money and then, you know, let's just kind of stock price go out. To, and, and all of that is great, but that's not really what I'm talking about, right? You can have a deep transformative vision of, for instance, transforming the way we see ourselves as a part of the planetary ecosystem, right? And then finding your own vision of yourself as a part of that larger story and then somehow things just kind of click you know it's like you you find your place in the universe in the way that that's very deeply motivating psychophysically 
And I also think using the, some of the traditional uh, terminology that it gives us this like fiery element of motivation. It's almost like the fuel for the trip, right? So if you're in a vehicle and you don't have enough fuel, yeah, you know, you, you're going to just kind of move around just a little bit. But once you have, you know, and you have like a jet fuel, you know, in it, then you can actually really go places. Yeah. And so that's part of the reason why I think it's so powerful. So you can have a small vision of yourself. You can say, hey, I want to improve something 5%, 10%. And all of that is good. But I think to really activate that particular component, it has to be intrinsically motivated. It has to come from yourself. And it has to be so massive. It has to be something that, to give you my own example, like these things that I'm working right now with Lipex. Yeah. Five years ago, when I was thinking about this, I would just be petrified <laughs> even thinking about it. Right. You know what I mean? It's just like, it's so big. And that's how you know that you're doing something that's actually transformative. You, you know, if it's something that you know, it's the ballpark of what you can do, that's fine. But if you really want to go for something, it has to be big transformative. And then you're going to find your way. Right. You definitely will find your way. Yeah. I hope that helps. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot more you can, there, there are very specific protocols to really work with this and to connect with this and discover, et cetera, et cetera, both individually and organizationally. But I'm just sort of using the simple words to describe how that general principle works. Yeah, no, I think it came through. I think some of the metaphors and explanations, they, I think they helped give a, a picture of what you're talking about and why is so powerful so i i think we can move on to flow and mm. maybe if you could i mean a lot of people are i think superficially aware of the mm. whole concept of flow but can you unpack that for us a little bit what what is flow really and just take us in there a little bit maybe give some examples of some of the playbooks sure. and protocols well a flow is is a game changer. It really is. Mm. So the reason the reason why it's sort of becoming good within peak performance, also it's part of my my framework and those are the whole science behind it. It can be a very separate conversation. There are a bunch of other people talking about scientifically how it came about. But experientially, like going back to this like raw experience of what is it that we're talking about that people can connect to, it's really a complete absorption in what you what you're doing. And it's often characterized by these six components, you know, people who studied it, they basically said, look, there's this like complete focus and concentration in the present moment. That's very intense, but at the same time, it's effortless because you're doing something that you're so interested in, right? That you're so passionate about. This focus almost comes along as a result of it. Right, so that's why that vision and motivation are important. Because once you discovered what that is, you get you get focused for free. <laughs> you know, you can spend decades of like developing meditating, concentrated practices. That's very important. But there's perhaps faster way, and you can do both as well. So, so one of the characteristic is this deep, deep concentration. The second one is a complete sense of full control over the situation. Even though people that are in the flow, sometimes they're doing things that are dangerous, that are really edgy. Sometimes people do things that are like very out of the norm, 
right? So, so even though performance-wise, you're doing something that's like really outstanding, there's this sense of like calm and deep, full control over the situation. Um, there's also a sense of selflessness, which is another way of saying that this inner critic, which is sort of like a mindset component that always say, oh, you can't do this, you know, and there's a reason why this is not going to go well and blah, 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 blah. So that sort of like goes quiet. And also that happens in meditations, but in flow, it's sort of like it's part of the it's part of the state. You don't have to do anything. It just it just happens. Right. Then the next couple of components, there's this like complete merging of action and awareness, which really means that like whatever you're doing, you just like so immersed that all the other mental and psychological overhead is just not present. Like you become mm-hmm. the activity, whatever it is that you're doing. And then there's also this, this, this timeless aspect, which is just, just another way of saying that, uh, and I'm sure you, you, um, you experience this in deep meditation, but the sense that like time passes funny, right? Like Steve Kotler sometimes said the time passes funny. There's this time distortion. So you could be doing something for two, three hours, and it feels like it was only two minutes. Right? Yeah. Or you can be something doing something for two minutes. It can really feel like it's like months. You know, and so that's that. Those are some of the. And then another one is that it's that uh, Mikai Csikszentmihalyi coined the term that the, the experience itself is autotelic, which really just means that it's it's so intrinsically rewarding that you don't really look for, you don't need any other reward. It's just mm-hmm. like self rewarding in itself, right? So, so imagine. You know, these six things, six, six, six subjective markers that I described. And imagine perhaps moments when you were a kid, when you engage in a really deep play. Yeah. And with kids, it actually, it's natural. Kids are in the flow and they stop being in the flow at some point. Some actually yeah. continue, but like, it's, right? So we all know this. Yeah, right? pu- and, and pu- puberty is a flow killer. <laughs> well, you know, it's, there's all kinds of discussions why that happens. But like, yeah. you know, if you, some people on your call will have memories of this state. Yeah. From the, from the time that were their kids. Some experienced meditators, right, will also understand some of the components of this. I, I recently spoke with some really world-class performers, one one is a musician, the other one is a chiropractor. And, and when I actually described flow, they were like, oh my God, that's what that is. You know, it's like I'm, I'm getting into flow every day. I had no mm-hmm. idea it has named this, but they were completely familiar. It's like the conversation mm-hmm. lasted like three minutes, you know, because they're like, okay, I know exactly what you're talking about. And so the reason why it's a critical component, because it's something that it's natural and universal, and it's it's a human capacity that can be nurtured and developed and trained right so that's why it's so important for me my two primary reference points are athletics like Mm -hmm. getting into flow states through athletics and the other would be through inner subjectivity like be like types of deep communion with others where the exchange just takes on some other order of sort of it's more like a dance Like it's more like a song, you know, that multiple people are singing, you know. Sure. And I think and, what you're describing, 
Sorry, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, it's just, it, you know, it has a lot of those markers that you described, the the autotelic uh, nature, the the uh, the timelessness, the, the, just the fundamental, like, union, that sense of just pure focus, all of those things. Like that, yeah. that's, that, that, that's one thing that comes up when yeah. you talk about that. Yeah. And, and what you, what you described also is what's called the group flow. That's, right. that's a whole different thing that happens in, in groups and teams. And, and, and it, it has similarity, similarities within the individual flow, but also has some differences in the way how you approach it, how you train and all of that. But mm. that really is a holy grail of, work with teams and organizations. And the other aspect that I would just briefly mention, if you want, we can move on, is that traditions certainly knew about this and they harnessed it, right? So mm. this is not something that we just invest invented. One key difference though, is that in the Tibetan and other traditions, when they speak about flow, they don't call it a state. It's not something that you can tap into a little bit, right? The way they approach it is developing a permanent flow as a mm. part of a goal of creating a life life mastery like yeah. being a master of life basically right and so that is one key difference between how east looks at it and west looks at it but nonetheless it's a universal human capacity and it's a game changer and it can be trained developed and we should if you're not doing it we should really look into it Mm -hmm. nice all right well i that's great veteran i think that's a nice clarification of flow for everyone how about we touch on this last one culture yeah that's that's really a big one uh and and, and you briefly alluded it to some of the moments where you come together with the groups mm -hmm. uh and, and teams etc but really what the, the the definition of culture is that it's a Subtle but palpable inner V space of a group, team, organization. A V space, right? you said. Yes. Yeah. And the way and the way we can quickly connect experientially to what I'm talking about, right? We've been all part of organizations or teams that are dysfunctional, right? At some mm. point, I'm sure. <laughs> mm. And we know what it feels like to be part of the toxic and and sort of like environment that just kind of that's confused and distracted and uninspired and it's like a real downer yeah yeah right i mean we'll be all part of groups and teams and organizations where that happens and so it's really good to know that, that there's that, that they are culture that are cultivating and they know how to bring about excitement and sense of resilience and continual growth and learning and supportive and loving and collaborative uh, spaces, right? Where we can flourish individually and as a group. And that itself is also something that can be gradually trained and developed. And then on the really sort of like advanced side of that, you have group flow, which is a whole different level like if you if you can actually start tapping into flow with groups and then making it a little more kind of permanent things like that that's really where the future of performance of teams and groups is going just learning and knowing how to do that 
So when you talk about that, I, for me, the more familiar and obvious, I think about sports teams when you describe that. And like, to me, that's one of the most easy, obvious examples where you see professional athletes fall into these states where you can just see they're moving almost in some other order of being together. And mm. it's like that cliche, it's like poetry in motion. They're just, there's just this fluidity and flow that's permeating the team. And I think it's a lot rarer. This other uh, example that you're talking about, the Holy Grail, when you see that in an organization that, you know, makes widgets, for example, it's just a different thing. I think, well, at some, yeah. I know it's, I know ultimately it's the same thing, but it, it seems like, yeah. Can you just speak to that a little bit? Yeah, definitely. So when it comes to the athletic organizations and it seems true, I, I recently worked with, with a, a really world-class musician who, who he was telling me that like, after we started talking about flow, he was like, Oh my God, now I understand this is what I was trying to get everybody <laughs> to get into. But the rest of the people, they just didn't know. They wouldn't go, right? And so he, he you know, he understood now that like that what he was all, always trying to do was just get everybody to flow with him so they can actually have a group flow experience. So uh, the good news, though, as I mentioned, is that both culture and group flow, uh, they can be trained and, de- and systemically developed little mm-hmm. by little. And mm-hmm. so there's really no reason there's just no reason why you wouldn't be able to do, do that in almost any environment, right? Yeah. Because on the some level, on the some level, groups and teams and organizations are built build up from individuals, right? And so mm-hmm. if individuals start changing in the way that I was speaking about, mindset and flow and all of that, right? Right. And then you also have on the top of that, you add some of the principles of and best practice, how to do this in teams. I think about this as, as, as a completely natural capacity mm. of teams and organizations to do. It's just that we haven't really gotten around to do it a lot, right? Like, mm. so there, there's a scientist from the University of North Carolina, Keith Sawyer, who wrote a really influential book called The Group Flow. You know, he he basically was uh, following uh, jazz musicians and some, you know, improvisation groups and things like that. Those are really just sort of like outskirts of all kinds of other human activities uh, that people are doing. And so there's really no reason that only sports, like you can really bring this capacity in any organization where you have a group of people. So... What do you think? It is rare. I agree with you that it's very, very rare in today's society. But what I think is happening now with the peak performance going mainstream and things like that, I suspect we're going to see more of that. And I, mm. I think you're going to start seeing more and more organizations learning how to harness this and how to do this. That's awesome. What do you think makes it like, because again, that you brought up the example of, of course, jazz musicians. That's a, that's a really, obviously another really good example on top of like, athletics like professional sports you have possessed uh, professional musicians both of those sort of exponents from those different contexts have spoken to the emergence of flow in their the kind of professional lives and then singing too is obviously another one where you people i think have these ecstatic flow experiences together and why do you think it's 
up until now? Because I think you're right, like about the potential and also it's possible in all of these different contexts across organizations, across contexts where human beings are coming together to, you know, merge their their wills and their skills to kind of, you know, do something together. But why do you think like music and sports, like why have they traditionally been the easier examples of this? Is it because both of those are very physical, sorry, both of those are very physical and there's a kind of unmediated quality to it. It's like so much of like playing top level music and top level athletics is you, you know, you, you like one of the professional prerequisites is you're, you got to get your mind out of the way. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so like, part of me, that's what I'm thinking about when I'm, posing this question to you, why do you think like those are almost easier examples or more ready to hand when, when we think about group flow? A couple of things to say about that. So one of the pioneering researchers uh, of flow, uh, his name was Dr. Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, who in the 80s really like deepened the scientific understanding of flow, but also brought it to the mainstream before. And Unfortunately, he recently passed, but more, more recently, it's really Steve Kotler and, and Jamie Wheel who are sort of like researching and, and continuing to be like spoke people for, for flow. And they have the research organizations who are really sort of like expanding the knowledge on this, right? So what, what Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi has find, found out in interviewing um, like hundreds and hundreds of different individuals, in all kinds of professions, from sheep herders to musicians to, you know, he found that like people get in the flow in any profession. There was almost like no profession which you cannot get into flow. Right. It's just that what happens is it's usually the top performers within those professions are the ones that are really pushing the limits because somehow they're internally motivated and they have this like inner vision and mm. they, you know what I mean? They have these other components and that's why they get into flow. And so in, in peak performance curriculums, which I, I think, I think they've done a really nice job and it's all research-based. They basically identify what's called the uh, uh, flow blockers. There's about 10 flow blockers that are blocking the flow. So those are the reasons why, we do not get into flow. And there, there are things like mindset and exhaustion and lack of clarity and all kinds of things like that, right? So mm-hmm. if you have five, six, seven blockers going on, it's very unlikely you're going to get into flow, right? But if you learn by using these methodologies, what are your top blockers and you unblock them and you sort of like get motivation and vision online, things like that, then... You can also use what's called flow triggers. These mm. are well-established and researched known ways that you can trigger a flow state, right? So they include having a clear vision, having sort of like a mastery over what you're doing. Uh, it includes things like for groups, certain processes in which we say yes and, which means it's, they're very inclusive, Right. And so when you have three, four or five triggers, which are just basically, you can call them just certain conditions that they have to be a place within a group. And that group naturally is going to start getting the flow. So to answer your question, then 
what I think happens with the type of environments that you described, like jazz musicians and various type other group activities, is I think what naturally happens is that the people who are part of those groups somehow naturally, without knowing these systems, they basically reduce the blockers and increase the triggers. And so it just naturally happens. Right. And now that you actually know the, the, the systemic, the components of the systems, there's really mm-hmm. no reason that if some organization in business and so on, if they're really willing to work <clears throat> and they're motivated to work to actually bring this about, there's no reason that you couldn't get into flowing organization. It's happening, you know, people experimenting in Google and Apple and sort of, I, I think it's coming mainstream for sure, but it might take a few years and so on. But there's no reason why you wouldn't have it in other environments. I just think that it's naturally, there was the lack of sort of blockers and natural certain environments that facilitate triggers. That's where people get into flow sort mm. of naturally without even knowing mm. what's going on. Interesting. All right. Well, so we're we're getting towards the end here, veteran. And I so this one I think is really geared to some of our listeners who may be thinking, all right, I'm compelled by all this. I want more flow in my life. I want I want more vision and purpose. This is all compelling to me. Two-tiered question here. What would you say? How does someone get started in pursuing this? Mm-hmm. Like setting up expectations here. What are the specific practical experiential results that a, applying a frame like work like this can have in an individual's life? What could they expect if one yeah. set out on the path of, of pursuing this framework? Perhaps a couple of things to, to mention. The first one is I, I shared with you before this call, I, I shared the uh, three links with you. One has a couple of very influential books that came out recently that were written by Steve Kotler, who is one of the pioneering researchers of flow and New York Times bestseller, and one of his colleagues, Dr. Jamie Wheel. Uh, between three of them, they wrote a three really beautiful books on flow. One is called The Rise of the Superman. Uh, the second one is called Stealing Fire. And the third one is called, what is it called? The Impossible, The Art of the Impossible. So these three books, what they do is, the first one is just like, decade-long research into where flow happens and like telling the stories about people who are getting into flow. That's the Mm. rise of the Superman. The second one is a collaboration between Steve Kotler and Jamie Wheel, and they sort of like putting a flow within the larger cultural environment and then within the larger historical trajectory of, of our modern society in a way, and they're connecting it with a bunch of other things that are happening socially. Mm -hmm. And then the third one is, it's almost like a high-level blueprint that speaks about some of these similar components uh, that I spoke about, but they're using sort of like a different system to talk about them. So it's a little more of a blueprint, getting into a little more into details. What are the components of flow? So I think all three are really, really good to read to kind of like really expand your knowledge and understanding. Mm-hmm. But depending on what your listeners are interested in, they can just jump in any of these three areas that they're interested in, right? Yeah. So the other two links that I included are links to two organizations that are doing a really high-quality, world-class flow training. I've been trained and certified by one. The other one, I think, is as good. And they're led by 
uh, Jamie Will and Steve Kotler and a bunch of other scientists who are really contributing to this. And so one is called Flow Research Collective and the other one is called Flow Genome Project. And so what I, what I would suggest to your listeners, they can go and Google these two guys and you know, watch a bunch of videos. They can read the books. And then if they really feel compelled and they think that they really want to sort of get trained in these systems, then they can sign up for, for the training programs that are part of these two organizations. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I would say as somebody who, who spent many, many years doing the mindfulness meditation, but then also other kinds, um, and then I spend a lot of time in peak performance. I think that they really supplement each other beautifully, especially because the mindfulness style of meditations that's prevalent in, in, in our modern societies is sort of like, it can be kind of like, you can use something else to move you along. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> and I think that uh, uh, peak performance and flow curriculums can really supplement and, and help clean up psychology, help build some of the capacities, knowledge about flow and things like that, and can really accelerate one's mm. growth and development. So mm. I think they can really beautifully supplement each other. I think there was a first part of your question. I think there was another question that you asked, but... Okay, yeah. I, your last point, though, is that meditation and these flow frameworks are deeply mutually supportive. Is That, that was the point you were making too, right? Yes. And I think if you have a meditative practice, like many of your listeners have, and then you also pursue like seriously really studying and going through the flow flow and peak performance curriculum, I think that what happens is the synergy between two really accelerate one's development. And they, Mm. they, they cross and form each other in a way that neither of them individually does on its own. So I think there are mutually compatible for sure yeah it sounds like more than compatible they're really mutually enhancing would you do you agree with that i think that's a that's a better way of describing it yes yeah so yeah the second part of my question from before is like what can people expect that applying a framework like this can actually have in their lives it's a little complex question in some sense, right? Because I, I want to be methodical in my answer. So let me just basically say that, that there's sort of like a three general categories within which you can evaluate and see whether using these frameworks has very, very positive impact on your life, right? The first one is to use sort of the integral framework, right? Sort of the, the individual inner subjective experience. Right. So my thoughts, my emotions, how I talk to myself, like we, we were speaking a little bit from the perspective of the mindset about that. Right. Yeah. And so what happens if you pursue these types of frameworks, right, and, and systems that are really holistic and systemic? I think over time you can radically change your inner experience. I know I had. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, moving from something that's a little more of a, of a gloomy, like negative you know, perhaps, and somehow feel constrained and boxed in, in the experience to something that's like wide open, positive, and just, you know, vibrant. Yeah. In the experience, right? So that's sort of the inner side. The outer side, what I think is extremely important, what I, what I emphasize quite a lot in my framework is somehow that has to translate externally. It's not enough 
that that you just feel better, right? So you also have to create a new habits, right? Mm -hmm. And then somehow that has to manifest externally. I, I gave you a brief example that maybe five years ago, you know, if I knew what I would be doing with you now and what I would be doing in general, I would just like, you know, I would probably hide under the table. That would just seem so big and impossible. Just doing it now and we're having fun. So it's all good, right? But somehow it has to manifest. And then the third component, how you can, if a system is really holistic and deep, then that also has to be connected with some sort of broader, deeper social change, right? So how what I'm doing is impacting a positive change in our society and our planet and things like that. So in these three areas, I would say if you're applying a framework, you should see positive, you should see very, very positive leaps forward within these three dimensions. That's great. That is a methodical way to evaluate the results and the progress. Uh, This has been very rich and I think gives people a really fantastic introduction to the Leap X Peak Performance Framework. Do you have any kind of concluding thoughts that you want to share with folks or anything more you want to add before we wrap it up? I I already mentioned sort of combination between the mindfulness meditations and and, and, and peak performance. But if you allowed me, you know, like two, three minutes or five minutes, I perhaps can, you know, share something that can be even more useful to them. Sure. Because it is also something that I sort of crystallize in my head over the years and summarizes like a couple of decades worth of work for me. But I, I mentioned a bunch of different systems, right? And people are familiar perhaps with some of them and so on. But what I found to be an extremely valuable way to think about these different systems is to use, you know, some tradition use use the term vehicle, right? To sort of look at them as vehicles. So let's just like metaphorically imagine walking into a parking lot and there's six, seven, eight vehicles parked right next to each other, right? There's a skateboard and then there's a scooter and then there's a bike and then there's a motorcycle and then there's like a small car like you yeah. go right <laughs> and then there's a and then there's a ferrari and then there's a jet and then there's a rocket ship right so they're all vehicles yeah that's obvious they all will take you from a to b but there are some really crucial differences some are very obvious but there's some that are perhaps not right so what's different about that situation is that first of all, the distance that you would cover, right, by riding one of these vehicles within one hour can be radically different. Imagine riding a a skateboard for an hour and driving a Ferrari and traveling in a rocket ship for one hour, Hmm. right? So these are radically different outcomes by using certain vehicles. The other thing that would be very different, for instance, would be your subjective experience riding, riding on a bike and sitting in a Ferrari and, and traveling in a rocket ship, like your experience would be very different. Also, the landscape that you see would be very different as well, right? So what I'm trying to get to is that some of these vehicles, when you, when you really compare them, some can be less transformational and some can be very transformational. So 
to use the example of the rocket ship, you know, you probably know the story, but when these astronauts, right, like were, were going on the moon with the Apollo, right? Like, so they looked back, you know, after traveling, I don't know how long, they looked back at the planet Earth and they were, they said, basically, look, I, that changed us. Like we're yeah. different people just by yeah. doing that, right? Yeah. And so some of these vehicles, like, and so different systems that I described, including different meditations, it's very helpful to think of them as vehicles. They will take you different places. Some will be more habitual than others. Some can be more radical and some can be really transformational. And so even within meditations, different meditations will do different things, never mind the different systems, right? And so what I would offer as a suggestion is to look at the vehicles that you're sort of riding in, right? And say, is this meeting the need, my, 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 my desires, like where I want to go, where I want to be, right? Like, should I look and explore other vehicles? Is it useful to try a couple so I can understand? Sometimes they inform each other, they help each other most of the time and things like that. That would be something that I would give as a, as a sort of like potentially useful metaphor. Yeah. How to look at the system and practices that you engaged in and basically saying, hey, what kind of vehicle is this? And, you know, just like important note, this is not a value judgment that a, U, that a Ferrari is better than a Yugo, right? So it's, it's fine. You know, the different vehicles do different things. But a little bit of a critical thinking and evaluation can really help you choose the right vehicles for mm. where you want to go mm. individually or organizationally and so on. Yeah. And so in that context, combining the mindfulness with peak performance, which is amazing vehicle, right? Or Mahamudra and Dzogchen, which are more like a rocket ships, right? Mm-hmm. It's useful to kind of think of them that way, perhaps. I love it. I think those are great metaphors. All right. Good to know. I know it helped me a lot. So Yeah, I know. It's, it's really good. Everyone, I'm going to gonna include the three links that Vedran talked about. Uh, Vedran, when do you, you work with both individuals and organizations, is that right? And teams. Yes, that's correct. So my primary focus is uh, organizations and teams, uh, but I do occasionally work with individuals as well. So we'll include a link to, to your website too. Yeah, is it so? Is that yeah? The it's, primary it's one way? of the yeah. It's one of the links. The website is 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 something that I'm gonna sort of upgrade very soon, but includes a bunch of these information that I spoke about. It has this is some of the other ones. So I don't know if people are interested, they can go and check it out for sure. So yeah, I included the link there as well. Yeah, and I encourage everyone to check out the website. I can speak from personal experience here. I I worked with veteran just a little bit. I mean, it wasn't. It wasn't much at all, but it had an immediate impact. And I can vouch for Vedran and his work. If you if you have an organizational context that you might that you think might benefit from this, or you're you're an athlete or a musician, you think you might benefit from this, or your team, an organization might benefit from this. I I really encourage you to check it out. I will be including all the links for that so you can follow up with Vedran directly. And uh, super. Veteran, thank you so much, man. This has been awesome. Thank you, Morgan. I, I knew it would be fun. So yeah, <laughs> it, yeah. Uh, it always happens when we talk. So that's, it's awesome. Thank you. Awesome. 
I hope you enjoyed this episode of the One Mind Meditation Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a rating and review over on iTunes. I can't tell you what a huge difference it makes. Every rating, every review boosts our signal in the algorithm. It's a huge help and helps other people discover our show. So if you want to learn more about Vedran's work, I've posted links in the show notes. And you can check those out over at aboutmeditation.com. Just head over to the podcast section and you'll find today's show with Vedran. And all those links will be in there. And just a reminder, if you're interested in joining me for the Coming Home 5-Week Mindfulness Meditation Training Program starting next week, November 8th, Tuesday from 8 to 9.15 Eastern Time, I encourage you to learn more about it. Head over to aboutmeditation.com. That's aboutmeditation.com and look for the Coming Home banner on the homepage or in the menu bar under Courses. And you can follow those links, go to the landing page, and sign up. And as I mentioned earlier, if you have any questions about the course, feel free to write to me at morgan at aboutmeditation.com. I would love to have you in the course. And great. Thanks so much for listening. Let's wrap it up. As always, with a quote, this quote comes from Stephen Kotler. He is one of the real champions of flow, and he's written the book, The Art of the Impossible, Stealing Fire, and the Rise of Superman, all about flow and flow states. And he says, when doing what we most love transforms us into the best possible version of ourselves, And that version hints at even greater future possibilities. The urge to explore those possibilities becomes feverish compulsion. Intrinsic motivation goes through the roof. Thus, flow becomes an alternative path to mastery without the misery.